please make sure to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast, Episode 4, Financial Strategies and Retirement Planning with Certified Financial Planner, J.C. Corrigan. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. Hey, this is Greg with the Suburban Folk Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about finance and retirement specifically. I'm really excited to do this cast because... Finance is one of the things that I tend to geek out over, and the more I talk to different colleagues or friends, it seems like I'm maybe in the minority on those types of things, but I'm joined today with J.C. Corrigan. He's a, a CFP for 15 years, I believe, uh, and he has his own firm, Personal Financial Experiences. J.C., how are you? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm, re- again, really excited to, to have you talk to us about retirement in particular, because I know when I talk to colleagues about things like 401ks or budgeting or other things like that, the eyes tend to glaze over. They say, you know, they want it to be plug and play. It's not necessarily plug and play, as I think you could probably attest. Uh, you know, even in some cases, they'll ask me about certain stocks, bonds, things like that, you know, what, what methods even I employ as just a regular guy without that, that CFP certification. So I'm curious, when you're talking to, we'll call it the general public, um, do you find similar uh, interest or disinterest, let's say, in the world of finances and investment and budgeting? So, so two things on that front. So the one thing I've always noticed is that people are kind of afraid to talk about money. And there's studies out there that say people are more willing to talk about their sex lives than they are about <laughs> money to other people, which is really fascinating to me. Um, money it introduces because there's, it's like ambiguity plus choice equals decision paralysis. Right. And when you have a 401k that has all these choices and you go through the, the um, time when you have so many other things on your plate to look at what's under each individual fund per se – a lot of people just don't even want to go there and they just shut down. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't surprise me at all that people don't want to talk about this stuff. Now, another thing that I've noticed is that people are more willing to listen to me mm-hmm. when I say as a dad as opposed to as a financial advisor. Right. So the whole there's a, there's a macro feeling about money. When you consider debt, when you consider people are paying for their student loans, when people are paying for... They're, they might be paying for their parents in terms of age, aging care. They, they might be paying for daycare. And right. all of those things come together, and it makes it really hard for them to talk about money or even take care about themselves when they're trying to take care of so many other things. Right. And, you know, I already am catching myself that I feel like in this world you hit acronym after acronym, and I just blew right through CFP, which is Certified Financial Planner. So please stop me at any time, and I will be sure to stop you as well if there's uh, any acronyms that we cover that, you know, being in the world, you just assume people know. But I think that can also happen as well, that there's a lot of assumptions that are made um, when dealing with people for the first time of what their engagement level is. And like you said, whether that's budgeting or how it fits into their whole life scheme versus if they're really into investing and, and so on. And one other thing I'd want to mention from an intro standpoint. So JC is my financial advisor. And when um, my wife and I were saying, okay, we, we're sort of at a point where we need 
an external source to, to help us sort of navigate the waters. Uh, you know, we went through a number of different folks to see what their game plan was and things like that. And, you know, in the world of financial advising, there's certainly a sales aspect to it, right? And we had, let's call it um, varying degrees of sales tactics. But what I really like for what you do is, again, I think you geek out with me on on the uh, analysis stuff. So actually, just before we started recording, we were looking at, you know, some different models as far as investment strategies and things like that. So I will say that I really appreciate that being, you know, the way you go about it of here's the analysis, here's the data numbers. How do you feel about it? Like you mentioned, you know, there, there's definitely an emotional piece of, of investing and of course um, what your, your risk uh, aversion is and or risk, risk tolerance, I should say. Um, so again, for, for anybody that's, that's, at that point where they need that extra person, I would say that that being able to dig into that analysis and knowing where your money's going is is really good. So just wanted to throw that out there uh, as well, that I appreciate being able to uh, have that kind of <laughs> hands-on experience for the data. Oh, thank you. Um, so to me, it seems like when people hit the first time they experience investing in particular most likely it's going to be in the 401k. So from my standpoint, it's I got out of college. I have my first corporate job. Um, this was actually before everything was electronic. So I get this piece of paper. It's got a list of funds on it. I go to my parents, right? Who else would I go to and say, hey, how much money should I be putting in here? So what percentage of what I make should go into this? And what are the rest of these funds? You know, what do they mean? So, you know, I with their advice, I'll say somewhat arbitrarily, put a number down on the paper. And, you know, the the best piece of advice, at least I got from there is, hey, whatever you never saw, you can't miss. <laughs> so at right. least, you know, when you're starting a new job, if you, if you put that savings in there before you ever see a paycheck, then great, just let it keep going. You know, then it, then it's, you know, less painful when you're sort of trying to ratchet up your savings. But, you know, starting from that standpoint, and, and again, I think that's probably where most folks first hit investing Give me the, the overall summary. What is a 401k? What are some of the other, I know obviously there's other savings tools depending on the type of company that you work for. Yep. And, and what do you get when you enroll in one of those plans? Yeah, so I, I find it interesting that you say the whole concept of what you don't see, you don't miss, because right. I really think that's what the government does with our taxes. <laughs> so that's the right. reason they take the taxes out of our paycheck. So, but with the 401k concept, you know, there's a certain hierarchy of how you should invest. So bef before you even get to a 401k, hopefully you have some sort of emergency slush fund mm -hmm. um, established so that if you were to lose your job or maybe you have short-term disability and, and your coverage isn't enough for your normal expenses, I highly encourage everyone to make sure they have a, sh a short-term emergency fund. For some people, that's three months. It could be up to six months, but that's, that's probably the most important thing to have. Then right. you can start getting into the 401k. For the 401k itself, it's going to provide the benefit of you're going to have tax-deferred growth. With that tax-deferred growth, um, you're, ta you're going to be paying lower taxes now, and then mm -hmm. when you take that money out later, you're going to be in a position where you're going to have to pay the taxes on it. And then that comes up to a bunch of different tax strategies, which we can right. talk about at some other time. Mm -hmm. um, so I would encourage everyone to, at the very least, max the match. So what mm -hmm. I mean by that is companies provide a 401k match. And if you can get to a level where you maximize that, the match that they offer, that's something you should, should definitely encourage. If you're able to go above and beyond that up to the maximum for the year, which I believe this year is $19,000. $19, yep. $19, and if you can get to that level, then great. 
one thing that some people try to do that I would caution you against mm-hmm. is that if you try to get to that 19,000, say like, well, I'm going to get that done in October. So I have money for Christmas and right. everything else. Some companies will not match once you've reached that max. Mm-hmm. So if you're not contributing for October, November, and December, you're also losing the match potentially depending right. on the way your, your company has it set up. So I would encourage everyone to just keep it evenly distributed throughout the year and then take advantage of that match as, as best you can. Yeah, that's actually, I know every single 401k I have had is like that. Like you mentioned, it's it's paycheck by paycheck. So if you put all of your money into the 401k at the beginning of the year, you're losing all of those matches throughout the rest of those paychecks. Um, actually, the, the current tool that my company has, they even show the incremental through the year. So when you plug in the percentage, uh, it shows you when you hit the, when you hit a max, um, so that you can distribute it out, which I actually thought was a pretty cool tool. So it makes it a little bit easier. Let's just make sure that, um, for anybody that really doesn't understand again, tax deferred versus like what is taxable, um, quick explanation of what that means as far as your take-home pay. Sure. So if you, let's say you make $100,000 a year, just as a a nice, easy mathematical example, Mm -hmm. and you put in $12,000 a year into a 401k, your taxable income will go down by $12,000. So given the tax bracket you're in, you know, not paying $12,000 in taxes Mm -hmm. could be saving you $3,000 in taxes this year. So you know, if if you choose not to contribute to a 401k, mm-hmm. you're also choosing to pay more in taxes right now. So now the the other side of that, the flip side, would be that that $12,000, as it grows between now and the time you start taking distributions, sometime after 59 and a half, right. hopefully, then you're in a position where however that money grows, so let's say that 12000 grows to 120000 mm-hmm. If you take that money out when you're 60, you're going to be paying taxes on it then. The good news is that you're probably not working at that point or or whenever you take it out, that you'll be in a lower tax bracket. So you're actually not just saving yourself money now, you're probably putting yourself in a lower tax bracket later. Mm -hmm. So it it provides a a front-end benefit as well as a back-end benefit potentially, depending on your situation. Yeah. And I always also like to even just think of it from the standpoint of let's say your effective tax rate is 25%. So if I put in a hundred bucks, you know, I've only decreased my take home pay by $75 rather than the full hundred dollars. So it's almost even from that standpoint, like you're, you know, seeing an increase even more without the same amount of, uh, hurt, let's say to your take home, take home pay on the back end. So, um, it's, it's definitely sort of a nice thing to see then. And then, of course, like you mentioned, once you get to the retirement uh, age, and likely you're probably not in that same tax bracket, so you're not going to see the same hit at that time um, when, when you start to take your distributions. Um, so following along sort of chronologically, so we're, we're invested. We're making sure that we've at least put in enough to maximize the, the match of the employer. So now, what am I doing with my money when it's in a 401k? What are those options? Right. So so the 401ks offer usually stocks, bonds, um, could be international stocks. Mm-hmm. Some have a bunch of different choices within those that have very cryptic names, if you will. <laughs> um, I would say that if you're fortunate enough to be in a Vanguard, that have something that offers Vanguard, mm-hmm. 
you're most likely to have a Vanguard total market index. Mm -hmm. And being in total market indexes is essentially the same as being invested in the Russell 3000 or the S&P 1500, Mm -hmm. which not just the S&P 500 is just large cap stocks. The S&P 1500 includes smaller companies as well. That's a great place to start. Um, and if you're, if you're just starting off, you're probably in a very good position where you can just put your money into that index because one, Mm -hmm. the expense will be low Two, while they are riskier than bonds. If you have a thousand dollars in that and we have something happen like in Argentina did a couple months ago where the market goes down 48% in one day, you're only losing $500. Now, if you have $50,000 in that account, I'm going to have a very different answer. But getting started, just having one fund that's just total stocks mm-hmm. until you get, reach to a point that's critical mass for you, which mm-hmm. really needs to be a discussion between you and your advisor, depending on your situation. But starting off with one fund that's low cost is a way to go. Once you start getting over a certain amount, and for that will vary from situation to situation, mm-hmm. you're going to want to look at what your a lot of people and a lot of advisors talk about risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, I find risk tolerance to be very misleading in, mm-hmm. in several instances, and I like to talk about what your risk spectrum is. Right. Because risk tolerance is basically how you answer questions based on dealing with play money. Right. And your answers, depending on how the market's doing, might vary. So if I, I could ask you that question when the market's up 20%, mm-hmm. and your answer could be very different than when I ask you those questions when the market's down 20%. Right. So I like to understand not just what your risk tolerance is, but what's your risk required. Risk required gets into this is the minimum risk that we need mm-hmm. so that the goals that you've established can be accomplished. And everyone's like, well, what are goals and how does that come into the effect of 401k? Well, Mm -hmm. so one thing in my industry is everyone's talking about goals-based planning. I mean, to me, that's like saying oxygen-based breathing. (laughs) Okay. It just doesn't, it doesn't really mean that much, but just to put some context behind that, I am yet to walk into a single client's house where they have pictures of themselves with their money. Mm -hmm. It's more with the people they love to places that they've loved um, and, and time that they've spent in places that they, and, and with people they want to do that with. Yeah. Well, we, we, we just came from Disney. So, you know, the Scrooge McDuck, you know, like mountain of money. I, I was thinking about it. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because if you compare the Disney stock and the Disney, um, price of a ticket, you'd be better off buying a hundred thousand Disney tickets than yeah. you would be buying Disney stock. <laughs> right. So, um, but anyway, if you're in a very good position to understand, not just what your risk tolerance is, but what your risk required is, mm-hmm. You could make the argument that any risk you take over the risk required is unnecessary. Right. And why are you taking it? Mm-hmm. Now, that said, there's also what's called risk capacity. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I can take up to this much risk, and that might be 100% stocks. It might be 50% stocks where my goals don't become in jeopardy. Right. What gets scary is when that risk capacity and that risk required are mm-hmm. really tight. Because then anytime the market has significant fluctuation from its misbehavior, Mm -hmm. then you might be on one side or the other. And then things from a planning perspective and making sure that your goals can be achieved becomes a lot more, um, I'll say challenging, but you know, it's, it's a matter of what lever do you pull so that you can still keep those goals and and an acceptable lifestyle. Right. Right. And jumping back to even when you're talking about funds and just assuming that somebody listening to this may not have even gotten into the difference between, let's say, a fund versus an individual stock versus a bond. So um, one example, when you when you mentioned limiting the fees, so it's very common to have these target funds, right, which the idea is, okay, I'm going to retire this day. This thing's labeled that 
I'm going to, if it's the year I want to retire, I'm just going to plug and play, put all my money there. But for example, that means that there's trades going on inside that fund more so than like you mentioned, an index fund, which is more of like a let it ride, right? So presumably that means that that's a lower uh, amount of fees so that, that your money's not going to basically paying somebody to do active trades, right? Yeah. So target-based funds are really interesting from a couple different perspectives. And, and I'm I am cautiously, I'm cautious and skeptical of them. Um, what do I mean by that? So let's say I'm in the Vanguard 2050 fund. Mm-hmm. And let's say I'm comparing that Vanguard 2050 fund to a American funds 2050 fund. Right. The risk tolerances of those two accounts could be very different. Mm-hmm. And when you look at what the what the makeup of those and the allocation of those accounts are, um, it may they have no idea what your lifestyle is. Right. So it may do absolutely nothing to, for you to achieve your goals to be in the 2050 fund. Um, you might be much better off just managing it yourself mm-hmm. through individual accounts. Right. Um, the other thing with the with a lot of these target date funds is that they will double dip their fees. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm in the Fidelity 2040 fund. And the 2040 fund has an expense ratio of 20 basis points. Mm-hmm. Well, the Fidelity 2040 fund if you look underneath the hood, it has a lot of other fidelity funds. Right. And those fidelity funds might have anywhere from 10 Another basis points point. to 1% yeah. of funds. So you're not only are you paying that 20 basis points up front for the um, target date fund, but mm-hmm. you're also paying for the fees within the fund itself. Right. So it's something that you really got to look under the hood and understand what your total cost of ownership is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then something else sort of baked into there is, and I think you're going through like allocations, generally speaking is stocks and bonds. You want to talk a little bit about, like you said, that goes back to the risk tolerance as well, but just even what bonds means, let's say, as far as risk tolerance versus amount of stocks and what that allocation would be. Again, it it varies like, like to your point, but um, just high level, what are those considerations as far as how much to do in stocks, how much to do in bonds, how much of international, let's say, versus, what are those varying sort of levers to be tweaked? Right. So uh, a general rule of thumb that I've heard a lot of advisors use on various podcasts and whatnot is that stocks are basically going to return 5%, but they're going to have three times the volatility. Mm-hmm. Um, bonds, on the other hand, they're going to be probably closer to 3% return, and they're going to have you know half the volatility that, that stocks would have. But more importantly, it's how they... The yin and yang of stocks and bonds, mm-hmm. they, their correlation tends to be um, very different so that when stocks go up, bonds tend to go down a little bit and vice versa. That's a right. generalization. That's not always true. Sure. Um, however, um, being in that position so that your portfolio has isn't going to have the roller coaster ride is, mm-hmm. a, is a much better place to be. And so having those bonds, which is just the debt of companies or governments, you're now in a position where you're trying to offset some of the risk that might be associated with owning stocks. Um, and you have to don't have to look any further than the 2008 financial crisis right. and look how stocks did compared to bonds. Mm-hmm. Or if you look at 2001, 2002 with the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. how the stocks and the bonds performed in that situation. So Getting that right and understanding how those behave so you have a benchmark mm-hmm. of, hey, this is what I could potentially expect. It's not 100% true because every situation has a little bit of is a little bit different. Right. But it, it, it gives you at least some indication of how um, you might be able to tolerate um, 
when markets misbehave. Right. Okay. Very good. And one other thing before we move on to, let's say, some other uh, investment strategies. Now, I've never, knock on wood, had to ask you this question for myself, uh, but I've had colleagues talk about borrowing out of their 401k or even taking money out of their 401k. Uh, The obvious answer is, hey, you don't want to have to borrow from anywhere, you know, if you can help it. But from your standpoint, is there ever a situation or scenario? So you mentioned like the emergency fund and things like that. And again, hopefully that is the thing that is your parachute. If something, you know, really goes wrong financially speaking for you, that you're good to go. But is there ever from your standpoint, um, a, a time where it is appropriate to be taking money out, whether it's, you know, the option to borrow and then you pay yourself back into, or just taking money out, taking the financial hit. You should not do it as an elective per se. You, you, you need to be in very dire straits if that's the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are several scenarios that I can think of where the 401k balance can be extracted for one reason or another. One is divorce. It's called a quidro, a qualified domestic relations order, mm-hmm. where you may have to give some of your funds to your spouse that you are that you are um, separating from. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other situations like under death where you can get the 401k money, but there you got to be very sensitive to how you, you get that. But mm-hmm. just as a general, well, I'm just going to go borrow it from my 401k so I can make a down payment on a house. Right. That's not the way to do it. Right. Um, there's there's much more. There's there's better opportunities out there, and that should be your um, one of your last stops along the way to go get your four hundred one k. There's probably other avenues. Borrowing from a relative, as painful as that might be, is, is a is a better way to go. Yeah, um, you can get more attractive terms. Right. Um, you know, if you switch if for some reason, you lose your job with that four hundred one k's. Um, loans in play, mm-hmm. things get very dicey. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, so there, there's there's too many little quirks and too many things that I would just prefer that we we don't even go there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, I, I would exhaust all efforts, even a, even getting a side hustle before I would get a, take money out of my four hundred one k. But of course, everybody's situation, unique clients like to be treated uniquely. Right. So for me to answer that as a generalization mm-hmm. is one thing. But to talk to people for their specific situation is is probably the right thing to do to, to understand why they would have to go there in the first place. Yeah, and I think my only other comment for that is for the folks I know that have brought it up to me as just a, hey, what do you think about – I feel like it's misleading with the, the borrowing from your 401k because it's, oh, well, I'm paying myself back and, you know, it'll just be fine. Well, I, you know, you got to be pretty good, I would think, from a budget standpoint whenever you start paying that back because that's going to hit – um, you know, your bottom line as far as your take-home pay is concerned. And plus, that's money that's out of investments at that time. I don't know if there's other penalties potentially that go along with borrowing off of, but that's one that it, the language, I will say, that typically gets used for borrowing off of your 401k, I, I don't really like because I think people think it's almost, I don't want to say free money, but yet, oh, I'm just paying myself back. So it's not really a problem. And I don't think it's really as simple as that. Yeah. It's, it's very use, loose use of the language. You're mm-hmm. absolutely correct on that. So I, I think you're going down the right path. Okay. Um, so again, we're following through this. We've, we've matched our 401ks. We've done our allocation based on what our uh, risk tolerance is to the best of our ability, at least mm-hmm. in, in, in the 401k. So I mentioned also real quick, I know, for example, if you're a government employee, it's a different 
name for those investing accounts. I think there maybe are different ones for nonprofits. Just what are the other, and I assume they are all are pretty much the same structures of 401k, but they're, they're different names. They're the same structure, just different names, whether it's a 403B, mm-hmm. a 457, um, all those basically follow the same pattern as a 401k. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have different fees. They may have, um, you know, teachers, especially with some of the stuff that they have, they, they, they pay fees out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. They have lots of annuity plans built into their 401k. Mm-hmm. And if, again, look under the hood and you will see the expenses and, and it, it's jaw dropping. Right. Um, so I would say teachers are the ones that have to be most concerned based mm. on some of the things that they have, which is really okay. unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> it's another hit towards it, teachers. Yes, huh? it's, it's another hit towards teachers <laughs> or, or, or any, I mean, it's sometimes in colleges as well. Um, but a lot of them because of the endowments and because some of the oversight they have in other places, they've been migrated out of those really high expense funds, mm-hmm. but no one's really looking after the public school teachers in terms of their, um, retirement plans and their contributions. Cause the expenses are just, just eroding it away. And they, it's not like they're getting any value add in terms of the investment choices. So yeah. that's, that's probably the biggest word of caution that if any teachers having any questions, and don't know actually how to find the fees. It's, that's the one place I'm more than happy to help people, so like so they know exactly what they're getting. Great, that's that's really good to know. Yeah, I didn't like I said I've I've only been four one k, so that is interesting, not in a good way as far as what no, could be hidden in there. Not at all. So so I've done all of those things, and maybe I'll segue this way. Um, there is some schools of thought of only put into the 401k to the match and then look to an IRA, which uh, is not through your employer. Um, You initiate that on your own. That's where you would really see people, let's say, and as far as, you know, guiding, you know, what types of investments do you have? That'll be my first question. Do you have a similar strategy as far as um, only do the 401k up to the match first, then look at IRAs and then come back to the 401k. What does, what does that look like as far as, well, I guess also give me a summary of what the IRA is again, just from the standpoint of if anybody doesn't know, and then how does that commingle with a 401k, assuming you have the funds to, to invest there? Great. If I can take a step back even a little bit further than mm-hmm. that is that the, there's really a hierarchy of how you should be contributing to, towards your retirement and towards your needs, even present time. Mm-hmm. So after you max out the match of a 401k, if you're fortunate enough to have a company that has an HSA mm-hmm. and you are healthy enough and they have a match to that HSA, the HSA is definitely the way to go. Mm-hmm. The HSA offers a triple tax advantage that no other, that you can get no place else. Mm-hmm. One, when you contribute to an HSA, it reduces your current tax rate. Two, it it grows tax free and three, when you take it out, you don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. That is the third best benefit. It's even a better benefit than the 401k. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a match to an HSA, um, I would encourage you to put in as much as you possibly can without jeopardizing your current lifestyle into that HSA. Right. Um, credit cards. If you have credit card debt sure. that is greater than 6%, I would encourage you to pay off those credit cards before I would put money into an IRA right. and before I put money into a brokerage account. And the reason I would do that is you are locking into a certain rate of return. Right. And to get out of that credit card debt, increase your credit score that's going to help you with future mortgages. Maybe mm-hmm. if you get an auto, a, a car loan, now you're in a better position to um, get lower rates with them by paying off that credit card debt. Yeah. And I, I always 
Again, I, I like to do the tricks in my head, let's say, to, mm-hmm. to really make it feel like I'm getting something. You know, I, my phrase is, you can't tax savings. <laughs> so when you pay off a credit card or, you know, if there's something going on with your mortgage or let's say you haven't, don't have the 20% in your mortgage and you're paying other fees or something like that, um, if, when you're comparing that to an investment, um, it's probably you have to have a higher percentage yield investment because if it's in a taxable account, you're going to get something less from that. Yeah, I mean, I'm generalizing there, but uh, but that's something else that's that's nice about when you're paying something down and you're saving on it, if you will, when when you're getting rid of debt, because again, you, that doesn't get taxed. <laughs> so it's right. the the return is the return. There's not anything else going on. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so once you get to that point where you've paid off the credit cards and you've maxed out your 401k, because mm-hmm. that should probably be the next step after paying off the credit cards and whatnot. Now you're in a position where you can start thinking about an IRA mm-hmm. or you can even start thinking about a brokerage account. Mm-hmm. The IRA, you're in a position where it's either a you make a contribution and you can deduct it right now mm-hmm. or you cannot deduct it, but the gains will grow up tax-free. Right. Um, so depending on your situation, depending on what your tax bracket is, uh, depending on whether or not your spouse works, that's really going to drive the equation of whether or not you make a contribution to an IRA. Mm-hmm. The other part of the IRA contribution strategy is the whole concept of the Roth conversion. Right. So if you do a Roth conversion, that is taking a, an IRA mm-hmm. and then converting it to a Roth, a Roth account grows tax-free. Right. When you make that conversion, you would have to pay taxes on any of the gains on that contribution or the whole amount if you made those contributions and they were tax-deductible. Right. So... Considering that as part of the strategy, and there's a lot of timing issues associated with that, because the last thing you want to do is make that contribution on December 30th and then mm-hmm. make the conversion on January 2nd, because <laughs> the IRS has something called a called the step transaction yeah. doctrine, which basically says if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, your contribution is a Roth, and mm-hmm. we will we will ding you hard for that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's that's a comprehensive answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, the IRA is probably one of the one of the last things you want to do. Mm-hmm. I would rather you pay off your credit card debt before you made an IRA contribution, especially if it's not right. tax deductible. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and one other, again, just holding ourselves accountable to the terms in case folks don't know. Uh, and Roth, kind of going back to the, the tax deferred versus right. Roth is when you pay the taxes now. And then like you mentioned, um, any of the gains you have when you take that out later, you're not paying taxes on. So that's the difference when we say Roth versus the traditional, whether that's for IRA or if you're lucky enough to have that going back to the 401k, um, some plans even have that option in there as well. And that just gives you another lever to pull in retirement Mm -hmm. in terms of controlling your your, um, tax bracket and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So like when you may want to take out some money out of a, a traditional IRA or your 401k up to a certain tax bracket, but the next dollar might be taxed at a much higher rate. Mm-hmm. Now you have the option to go to the Roth to take it out, money out of there if you need it, and there wouldn't be any change to your taxes. Right. Yeah. And I know there's definitely strategies as far as those percentages, again, going into the same thing as far as your age, um, presumably income, current tax bracket, all those expected things that uh, would go into that strategy, which I'll probably earmark if, I, if I'm able to get you back for another <laughs> cast at some time. I think that's also very interesting sort of, again, I'll call it levers to pull that uh that that's a consideration i know that i have so so it's it's useful information to have um so 
And then, yeah, so I think that gets us to the IRAs. And again, totally, yes, if you've got any other debts or anything, I would wholeheartedly agree that, that those need to be worked out before you're, you know, sort of throwing money at, at these other types of accounts, you know, looking towards retirement. So what is, other than the fact that one is connected to your employer um, and the IRA is not, what are the primary differences between a 401k account and an IRA account? The biggest difference is that whatever you have in your um, IRA account, you can invest it in whatever the heck you want. Yeah. If you want to buy a little biotech company and put, if you have the, a, an account that's structured the right, right way, mm-hmm. you can now go buy shares of, of, a, of, of a penny stock. Not that I would necessarily encourage you to do that, mm-hmm. but the bottom line is the world is your oyster. Right. And you can, you can invest it in just about anything you could possibly think of. Um, you have more control. Um, that, that's, that's the biggest thing. I would say the other thing that might be a, an advantage is that if for something, if something were to happen to you, your spouse's access to that, those funds are probably faster. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they can't get to the 401k, but the ability to get that money and get it without t- taxes and whatnot, or without tax penalties right. is, is a significant advantage. And so it's, I, I would encourage people to look at that as well. Yeah. And just to even restate, like you're saying, world is your oyster. Like, I think people don't necessarily recognize that when you're in a 401k, you're going to have, let's call it, I'll say 50 options, something like that. But they are options that have been handpicked by your employer. And that's what you have to choose to invest your money in. When you're in an IRA, unless you're going to tell me I'm wrong about that. (laughs) When you're in an IRA, um, it, it is everything out there that's available from as far as stocks, bonds, funds, ETFs, so on. Yeah. The, the only thing caution I would throw with the 401ks is you got to be c- concerned about the conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, you know, Capital One is about 15 miles from, from where we're recording this right now. Right. They're with Fidelity. Mm-hmm. So the question I want to know is that Capital One's been around a really long time. Their employees are very loyal. You know, you can go to um, brightscope.com and look how much is in Capital One's 401k plan. Right. So Fidelity is probably very um, excited to keep all those funds, which I'm going to guess is probably at least nine digits in terms of the 401k (laughs) assets. Mm -hmm. So what kind of kickbacks are they offering Capital One to stay at Fidelity? Um, Who's picking those funds? Right. There's so many things that I think people need to be just cautious Mm -hmm. with. Now... At the same time, I think that Fidelity is probably going to do the right thing so they don't lose those assets. Right. However, always be um, look at it through a, through an eye of where's the conflict of interest mm-hmm. and where is there an opportunity for me to potentially avoid that conflict of interest. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the end, you don't have any of that when you get into that to the IRA. Yeah. It's, you, it's, it's you own it. Right. It's not. It's not Fidelity giving Capital One a check for thank you for staying with us. And I don't know if that happens or not, but the question always enters my mind with any of these plans. <laughs> well, and, and hit me with the website again. Is that is that sort of you can get most it's, public? So you can, I believe it's Brightscope. I haven't okay. been to it a long, in a while, but basically you can go look at every single 401k plan that's been registered on there. Okay. And you can look at, hey, there's... They have 550 participants, and there's 45 million dollars in this account. Mm-hmm. And you, you can you can find out what their top offerings are. Um, it gives you a lot of perspective about the what the landscape is for 401k plans, mm-hmm. and it'll say, hey, these fees are above the average, below the average for the industry, or what have you. So it's something that's it's it it allows you to look at things that 
might be hard for you to look at otherwise. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And if I as I go back through this, I'll try to provide links to, you know, anything that we're we're talking about here. So I might have to take a look at, at that once I once I get a chance. Um we talked about the the contribution limits for four one K. IRA current limits is six thousand. Right? It's it's sixty five hundred, I believe, and fifty five it's Boy, they change it so often, it's hard for me to keep up. But mm-hmm. I, I want to say it might be 6000 And then if you're over 50, you have a $1,000 catch-up contribution. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds, yeah. sounds right. I'll yeah. believe you. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm already reading about what the limits are next year, and I've got so many numbers dancing in my head because I keep right. changing that and the 401k, and they don't— they don't make it an easy, nice, easy number to remember. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's how the government rolls, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and then I, I think we might have mentioned, but just in case we didn't, again, the same rules apply for a Roth IRA versus uh, a traditional. Now there are income limits uh, to whether or not you can participate in the Roth, and I used to know that number, and I'm I'm kind of spacing on what it is. Well, it's different between married and single mm-hmm. um, in terms of what those limits are. Um, so. You can look them up very easily by doing a Google search, and it'll mm-hmm. tell you what it is. And frankly, I would expect everyone should do that anyway because right. they, they change every year. So mm-hmm. to make sure that you're eligible right. um, to go ahead and go through that, find out what the limit is and whether or not you can contribute. They have a phase out where if you're over a certain amount, like let's say you want to do three thousand, you want to do a full contribution, but you make too much, but you aren't over the other threshold. It might be where you have to do a stagger mm-hmm. where you do 3000 to a Roth and 3000 to a traditional IRA or, or whatever makes the math work. Cool. Um, and I know I'd like to, like I said, mm-hmm. I, I know I take a peek out there quite a bit for, for just what those changes are and, you know, how we can tweak things and so on. Um, I, I think, of course, there are plenty of other strategies we can get into as far as the details. Like I said, I hope that with this first episode, we're laying some groundwork around retirement, you know, you mentioned, um, the HSAs and, and heck maybe at a later time we can talk about HSA versus HRA versus flexible spending account, all that kind of stuff that's, that's out there. Um, high level, is there things that, that you feel like should be the bedrock of somebody's investing strategy? Again, we're, we're really focused on the retirement accounts right now. You, you mentioned the budgeting, you, you mentioned, you know, risk aversion, but is there something we haven't hit yet that's worth mentioning as far as, you know, here's one of the cardinal rules when you have your investment strategy and you're you know trying to, to save up the the number one thing is automate good behaviors and think about what you're going to do when the market misbehaves um i like to try to design portfolios for my clients that are anti-fragile mm-hmm. what do i mean by that um you know you could say the opposite of fragile is strong <laughs> however just because something's strong doesn't mean it won't break right I'd rather have something designed that's, you know, if it's fragile, it will break easily. If it's Mm -hmm. anti-fragile, when it gets exposed to weakness, it actually becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. So if I can be in a place where I design a portfolio for a client that when the markets do misbehave and they start coming down and the client is more bought into my portfolio, either because I'm sharing my portfolio with them and the the process and how it works, or they actually, and they see the results, um, I don't think you should ever buy into a portfolio because the results. I think you should buy in because for the process. Um, sometimes the process will be a function of bad luck. Right. But buying into the process and having good behaviors that support the process that, could, that will make your portfolio stronger, mm-hmm. especially in times of weakness, is is something that people should be looking for. So I would say automate good behaviors and understand that behavior is your worst enemy. You know. Th- the biggest threat to your portfolio is you. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's it it's really right. the truth. Right. And to be in a position where you know how your portfolio will behave when the market doesn't is something that is the bedrock, as you said, right. to making sure that you're in a well-postured going forward. Yeah, and I will say, at least for me, I'm trying to decide if I want to have this in the form of a question to, to put you on the spot at all or not. But um, you know, even for the place of financial planners around you know, getting out of your own way, I like to consider myself fairly savvy in this world. And you have read a number of books, things like that. But, you know, once we got to a certain point of investing strategy and, you know, I said to myself, hey, a third party view, if nothing else, you know, sort of getting out of your own way um, would be good to say, you know, okay, are we doing the right things? You know, what else can we be doing? You know, and do you agree that that is a, Definitely one of the primary roles of a financial planner and advisor. I I, th- I think an advisor offers value on four fronts. Mm-hmm. It's it's behavior, it's expenses, it's risk, and it's it's taxes. Mm-hmm. So the behavior front is probably the most important one because sometimes you're a little too close to your money. Yep. And when you're too close to your money, the decisions you make may be really rough. So I've been reading the book, 12 Rules of Life. Yeah. And in that book, they talk about how people will take their dog to the vet more often than they will take themselves to a doctor. Yep. Um, You are more likely to take care of a dog than yourself. And you know what? We do the same things with our money. Right. Right. So you're more likely to be in a position where if... If, if you can find a fiduciary and someone who is going to put your interest before they put their own interest, mm-hmm. they're going to be in a position to help you look at it through very objective eyes right. and then try to mitigate any of the behavior risks that are associated with money because that behavior risk shows up in terms of returns. Right. I've read 12 Rules for Life as well, mm-hmm. and I know exactly what you're talking about. And again, yeah. like you said, people are apparently more opt to take care of others than they are, yes. are themselves. So um, I'll have to put a link to... To that book, because I, I actually really, really enjoyed it, and I know it's been a bestseller for yes, quite a long time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, probably the best book, if I was to give folks something to read for um, to learn more about behavioral investing, it's by Dr. Daniel Crosby. It's called The Behavioral Investor. Yeah. Um, he talks a lot about some of these rules, and he says it in a very... Um, I'll say a clinical way mm-hmm. uh, where it talks about how there's certain behaviors. Um, he talks about how we belong. People like to belong to groups mm-hmm. and they like to, you know, in some ways you're like following the Joneses, if you will. And our culture kind of supports certain behaviors. It may not be the best things for your investments. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, what are those cultures made of? I mean, like we live in the state of Virginia, Right. Right. Well, we have these boundaries that are defining us. Why are we letting those boundaries define us? Right. Um, The Catholic, he gives an example of the same thing with the Catholic church. People Mm -hmm. belong to the Catholic church, but what does that really mean outside of belonging to a group? Mm -hmm. Um, So being in a place where you can look at things through your own eyes and not through our culture and someone that's spent time looking at the culture Mm -hmm. might be the, one of the better benefits of having a third party look at what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and the other I would mention, even for as far as investing books are concerned, and I'll, I'll trade some notes to make sure, again, I can get some links to some of the things you have, resources that you have. I always want to encourage everybody to, hey, if you can find it at the library and this in the, you know, go get it there. Because from the standpoint of, say, save a little money, <laughs> you don't necessarily have to buy it. But um, 
uh, you know, whether, whether they can get it at the library or if it's something that they can buy or, or get, that would probably be a good resource. I know I picked up a lot of books. Yeah. I, just... I, I've gotten a ton of books at the library, but mm-hmm. what I found was either one, I was, I don't, like my wife says, I don't read books. I study them mm. and it's gotten to a point where I've just bought them so I can write. Oh, keep going. <laughs> well, yeah. That, um... and, and then write, and then, you know, that way I can go back to it when I'm writing my right. blog or anything else like that, that mm-hmm. I'm now in a position where I can, spend the time I can go back to it. And then I can also have a contest with my kids of, Hey, I've read this many books this year. And, and how many of you read? And we stack <laughs> them up in terms of height and who's read more books this year. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's something I should try to do. I feel like, you know, enter the cliche, so busy with everything going on, but, um, you, you can never get enough books in. I feel like. Yeah. And, and part of that goes to the world of investing too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have a system in place for, I, I swim three miles a day, six days a week. I weigh myself every day. I try to read three books a month, which means I have to read 10% of a book I have every month. So if that's 300 page book, I just have to read 30 pages. Yeah. If I can't even find time to read 30 pages of a book, how can I possibly yeah. do a better job of doing research for my clients? How right. can I find better the system? Same thing with my um, in, investing. If you, if you have processes in place and you have systems in place and you have that discipline, right. you're going to be in a much better position. What I've found with a lot of my clients is that they have the discipline. They don't mm-hmm. have the structure to make their discipline work for them. Yeah. So being in a place where you can offer structure is is very critical. So if you can give structure to yourself in terms of making time to read or making time to do all those things, you're going to feel a lot better about yourself and you're going to feel wealthier. Right. Um, like I always say, wealth is everything that money can't buy. Money allows you to enjoy your wealth. So right. if you can be in choice to actually enjoy that life, whether it's reading or what have you, or spending time with your kids, then by all means, that's really what it's all about. Right. Yeah. Agreed. So, well, I think that's, that's everything, like I said, I had on my list. You mentioned your blog. So hit us with uh, the, the blog space website. Uh, if you would like, you know, ways to get in touch with you. If folks do hear this podcast and, you know, are interested in having you give them more advice as far as their particular situation. Yeah. So my website is myessentialwealth.com. You can find my blog there. You can subscribe to my newsletter there, which I call Wealthy Wednesdays. Uh, comes out every two weeks. I uh, usually have something about what I'm reading, uh, what made me laugh, uh, what I learned this week. And it's basically just, it's, I, I found that I was tired of being the, the product of social media on Facebook. <laughs> um, so what I'll do is I will synthesize a lot of things that I read and right. what I feel is the most important things, whether it be financially based, better dad, better husband, whatever the case may be, or something that just made me laugh. Um, I will put it on there so that people have a nice little, you know, cheat sheet of, of what I'm looking at over the past two weeks. Perfect. And yeah, that actually segues into some of the things that I'm trying to do with the podcast. You mentioned the workout regimen and I joked in the the Disney podcast that gosh, the amount of food, of course, that we ate with not much time to do any exercise or anything like that. Uh, I definitely need to have a few health and fitness <laughs> podcasts coming up. So I've lined up some friends of mine that, you know, I know are very, very regimented with their, with their, uh, eating and with how they get to the gym that, that I'm going to have to help challenge me, almost spot me literally to, to be able to do that. So that is going to be forthcoming. And then again, if folks uh, have questions or anything like that, that, you know, again, I hope we can do, you know, a couple of these every couple months or so. Um, it'd be interesting to know specific questions that happen to come up. 
Um, they can send it to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or any comments in the blog post at suburbanfolk.com. Um, we'd be happy to read those and, again, tackle that type of stuff. That'd be here. a lot of fun. I, w- I would enjoy going through a list of questions and finding out how we can help others. Yeah, that's great. Well, JC, I appreciate it. And we'll talk to everybody next time. Thanks for having me. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of the recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The participants on this podcast are not responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information or opinions discussed or their use. All investments are subject to investment risk, including loss of principal. Individuals should consider if an investment is suitable for them by reference their own financial situation with their own financial professional before executing any financial decisions.